Good morning, guys. Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 9 this morning. I can't stand it when a preacher says, we're not going to read the whole passage today because we don't have time. Because to me, that sounds like a preacher is saying, I want to hear less of God's words and more of his own words. But actually, today, we're not going to read the entire passage. I want to read most of chapter 9, and then we're going to highlight a few things in chapter 10. So hear now God's word together. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zeph, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming down to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has just now come to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? 
Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat it with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And verse 25 and 26. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel said to all the, sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you touch our hearts this morning? Would you give us courage as men and women who seek to follow you, to hear and respond and apply to your word? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm reading a very interesting novel right now. It's called Ready Player One, and it's by Ernest Cline. And in the novel, there is a mad genius named Holiday who basically creates the ultimate social network. You can picture Facebook meets World of Warcraft. And in this virtual world, Holiday has hid his multi-billion dollar fortune, which can only be found by locating three keys. Now, here's the catch. Holiday was obsessed with 1980s pop culture, and so the clues for the keys are these obscure references to that era. Now, I was born in the 80s, and so I can vaguely keep up with some of the things in the book. You've got MTV, Michael Jackson, Ghostbusters, Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, the A-Team, He-Man, Nintendo. I mean, all of this is great stuff. But as you follow the main character through the clues to find the keys, it's as if the creator of this world, Holiday, who is never overtly present in any scene, stands behind every single scene. Now, hang in there with me, but I think sometimes that's not unlike what experiencing God's presence in our lives can feel like, less the 1980s references. We know from God's word what he is like, what he cares about, but he doesn't always feel overtly present. Sometimes it can feel like we know about him, but we know him from a distance. Well, today we are going to find the divine, so to speak, in three places. We're going to be reminded from our passage that God is truly and actively and lovingly present in all of these areas. And the way we're going to do this is to start with the clearest example of God's presence and work to the most difficult. We are going to see God today in three places, in salvation, in the details of our lives, and thirdly, in suffering. So let's start with the divine and salvation. It can be tricky to see God in the mundane details of our lives, and it can be near impossible to find him in suffering. So I think we should start with the easiest. 
Where is the divine in our salvation? If you think about it, Saul's anointing as king has a lot of similarities with a person coming to faith in Christ. I want to show some of those similarities to us. We don't get a lot of background information of Saul. This is the first time we meet him. We don't know a lot about his pre-anointing life, but we do have some details and we can make a few guesses. We know, for instance, we just read this verse, that Saul is from the town Gibeah. He's a Benjaminite and he's from that region. And that town shows up at the end of the book of Judges. There is a scene in the book of Judges at the very end, the last three chapters of Judges, which is so awful and so horrendous and involves everybody in the town of Gibeah. I just don't even have the stomach to repeat it this morning to remind us of what happens there. But that's Saul's hometown. That's where Saul grew up. Those townspeople were his neighbors. And we think by the writing of this that Saul is about 40 years old. We assume that because we know his son Jonathan is fighting age, right? He's engaged in the army, so he needs to be at least 20. So that makes Saul probably about 40 years old. And at this point, at, at 40 years old, he has no idea who Samuel is. Samuel is the priest and the prophet of the people of Israel. And, and Saul not only doesn't recognize him, he doesn't even know who he is. And that gives us a little window into who Saul might have been before he is called to this anointing. Now, we all understand that Saul is going to turn out to be a villainous character. He's going to go downhill fast. And so it's easy from the beginning to be very suspicious of him. But actually, this is such a sweet passage about God's first engagement with the man Saul and what he does for him. Uh, Look at verse 20 in chapter 9. God speaks through Samuel and he says essentially to Saul, don't worry about the donkeys and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Samuel, through the words of God, is essentially saying to Saul, I know you're worried about the donkeys right now. But that is but a drop in the bucket of the providence of God that's going to be extended to you. Don't even think another moment about donkeys. The entire kingdom of Israel is yours. And Saul becomes like that man in Jesus' parable who, Jesus says, he's like a man who goes and buys a field and when he does and digs in it, he finds this treasure of immeasurable value. Saul's on a quest. He thinks the aim of his quest is to find these donkeys. And Samuel is telling him, man, that has nothing to do with what God wants to do in and through and for you. To whom is all the treasure of Israel? That's what God is going to extend to you. And God, as he's anointed king over Israel, gives Saul three things, the very three things that he gives every single Christian. Look at these. In chapter 10, verse 9, he gives him a new heart. Number two, in chapter 10, verse 10, he gives him a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's going to fill him and move in him. And in chapter 10, verse 26, number three, he gives him a new community. Men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Don't you see the ways in this passage and when we think about our own salvation and the ways in which God has given us a new heart, he's given us his Holy Spirit, he's given us, look around us, a community of believers to walk with us. God is intimately present in those moments in our lives. We can see that the reason I'm sitting next to a believer, the reason I can call a friend on the phone, the reason I have a heart that desires righteousness is because God is present with me and he's doing these things. These are not things we learn about God only. These are things that God here now is presently doing. 
I say all that first. We find the divine and salvation first because not only is that the easiest to spot to say these are all the gifts of God, but those three things that he gives us will help us now find the divine in these other two places. So number two, let's talk about the divine in the details. This is kind of a curious one that comes out in this passage. I don't mind uh, being the guy who's going to step out on a limb and say that 1 Samuel chapter 9 is not my favorite passage of the Bible. It gets a little kind of burdensome and tiring. We're looking for the donkeys. We can't find the donkeys. Where are the donkeys? The seer might know where the donkeys are. It's like, are we still talking about the daggum donkeys? Can't we move on and talk about something else? But we need to remember when we have those feelings that the divine is in the details, that the extraordinary can happen in the ordinary. Sometimes God works through miracles, and sometimes he just works through the plain and mundane. Look at all of the details that work together, all this providence that happens just to get Saul and Samuel in the same room together. There's a, there's a slew of, of them, of these details. Saul's dad, Kish, he needs to acquire wealth. He needs to acquire donkeys. He needs to acquire a trusted servant. He needs to build fences, and then those fences need to fall into disrepair, and the donkeys need to find that spot in the fence, and they need to escape. And then... The, the father gives Saul his trusted servant, and the two of them happen on this search together. And they happen to search for three days and end their, church in the, their search in the very region that Samuel is from. And just as they get tired of looking for the donkeys, Samuel just happens to be in that very city about to put on a sacrifice for the people. And then the servant just so happens to hear that Samuel is there and thinks that he might be able to help them. And the servant himself just so happens to have saved a quarter of a shekel and to have brought that quarter of a shekel with him to give this here. And just as they're talking about this, women from the city just so happen to be walking down to the well and they can point these men exactly to where they need to go to find Samuel. And that gets Saul and Samuel in the same room together. Those details are so mundane, they would just make for a very lame sermon. But if any one of those were missing, if you took one of those pieces out of the chain, the whole thing falls apart. We don't have this meeting of Saul and Samuel, and we're reminded that the mundane details are the place in which God is achieving the miraculous. The divine is in the details, even the smallest bits and parts of our life that feel so insignificant. God is there, he's participating, he's present, and he's receiving it back in worship. Now, I just made a huge jump there between 1 Samuel 9 and us today, and some of you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a bit of a stretch. We've got this wild scene of 1 Samuel 9 where God happens to use these mundane details and he makes a king out of it, right? They all lead directly to making Saul a king. It sounds like too big of a jump to me to take those mundane details and bring it 3,000 years forward to the present and try to make the case that God is involved in the mundane details of my life and I am surely not going to become a king. I mean, there's places in my life that God just doesn't care what I do, right? What time I wake up and what I wear for the day and what I eat for breakfast and my commute to work. I mean, there's just, there's these gaps in my life that God's not like, he's not involved in those places, right? Well, if you're thinking that, I am so grateful that you had that thought because it is dead wrong. 
It's absolutely 100% couldn't be further from the truth. And I, I see that not just in 1 Samuel chapter 9, but other places. Think about a place like Ephesians chapter 4, where in the letter of Ephesians, you get in those first few chapters some of the most sweeping descriptions of soteriology. This is what God is doing in our salvation. He's been working at this thing from eternity past. He achieves it and vertical and, recon- and, and horizontal reconciliation. And then chapter 3, it is going to take the power of the entire trinity to allow us to understand the height and the breadth and the depth of width of God's love. And then Paul turns from all of that and he says, here's how I want you to apply that. As a Christian, this is what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the descriptions he gives are so plain. They're just so mundane. He says, Christian, if this is true, if the Trinity is upholding in your heart the depth of Christ's love, then I want you to be nice to your neighbor. I want you to speak truthfully to the people that live to your left and to your right. Christian, I want you to work with your hands. I want you to get a decent paying job, and I want you to work hard at that job so that you will have something to share. Christian, I want in all of your conversations, whether you're putting a child down to bed or you're staying up late with your roommate or you're standing around the water cooler, in every one of those areas, I want you to think how your conversation can be life-giving and not life-taking. Do you see how Paul is knitting all of these just mundane details into the Christian life? I think one of the most key passages for all of this is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Can you think of a more mundane act in our life than drinking? I mean, the last time you and I had a sip of water was such a throwaway event that I don't think any of us could remember what happened there. And yet Paul is saying... The divine is in the details. His presence is not paralyzing. We don't think, oh my goodness, he's here, he's present. What's the will of God for my life? What should I eat for breakfast? Is it Cheerios? Is it Frosted Flakes? Does he care? No, his presence is not paralyzing. It's participatory. He's with us in those moments. He is present then and there. And and he receives every one of those details back to himself in worship. You read a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 9, this kind of tiresome search about the donkeys and this travel and connecting with other people, and you begin to realize real quick, there is not a square inch of our life that God is not present in, that he doesn't participate in, and that he doesn't ultimately receive back to himself in worship. There's not a thing we can do, say, a minute we can spend that God is not present in those moments. Friends, the divine is in the details. That can be tricky. That can be hard to think about on my 20-minute commute to work, my wait at a red light, standing in line to buy my groceries. But if that's tricky, then I think finding the divine in suffering, in the places that we feel oppressed and that we suffer, that can be one of the most impossible places to find that God is present with me. At this point in the story, Israel is suffering. She's suffering in many ways. Her leadership is corrupt. We read in the chapter last week that her leadership is taking bribes and they're corrupt, and that's a form of oppression. Israel herself is very corrupt. She's Uh, adopting the same idols that she had just gotten rid of. She complains about her priests taking bribes, but bribery is a two-way street. You can't have somebody taking bribes unless you are giving bribes, and Israel herself is doing that very thing. Israel has just asked for a king like the other nations. She's rejected God, and so she has all of this corruption and conflict within her, 
And then on top of that, not just the priesthood, not just her own heart, but there is oppression from without because the Philistines continue to harass and attack and take advantage of Israel in this state. And so Israel finds herself in a deep, deep season of suffering. She's suffering from above. She's suffering from within. She's suffering from without. Some of it is self-inflicted. Some of it is others-inflicted. But all of it is deep suffering that Israel is experiencing. Let me pause right there and ask us an interpretive question that will tell us something very deep about our understanding of God. When you get to this point in the passage, you understand that Israel is suffering. I want to ask you this as a fellow interpreter. What does God think of Israel right now? As God sees her, as he sees this suffering, what does God think of Israel right now? Israel made a huge show of repentance in chapter 7. We saw that, we celebrated that, but by chapter 8, she has adopted and absorbed the very same idols that she had just gotten rid of. She complains about corruption in her priesthood, but she is participating in that corruption. Israel has just rejected God as her king, and she said to God, you know what, we want to be like these other nations that surround us. The very wicked nations you told us to expunge from the land, we want to be like them and have a king like them, And all of that begs this very important question, what does God think of Israel? He sees that, what does he think? Because if you can answer that question honestly, if you can take a long, hard, interpretive look at 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and answer that question, you're going to begin to answer the parallel question that strikes every one of us. And that is, friend, what does God think about you right now? You who suffer. You who experience conflict from without and within, when God sees that, what does he think of you right now? Because you and I are in the same place. We heard the repentance in chapter 7 and we celebrated, lament, repent, remember, and yet in the last two weeks, you and I have done the exact same things that we confessed two weeks ago. We've done the same sins that we hate and we've confessed and repented to the Lord and we've engaged in them once again. You and I who are quick to spot the speck of corruption in a neighbor carry around our own corruption like a plank sticking out of our eye. You and I who enjoy the status of the saved, frankly, we look a lot like the nations that we came from and all of that begs the question for you and I, if that's true of us right now, and it is, what does God think of you and me right here, right now? That's an incredibly important question. And the answer that we are going to find is not going to come in speculation. It's not going to come in well-wishing. It's not going to come out of this quaint pastoral concern for all of us to be people with a robust self-esteem. All of that would last about five minutes if we got some of that. The only place to answer that question is the authority of God's word, And God tells us exactly what he thinks of Israel and what he thinks of us. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. God appears to the prophet Samuel. Samuel is incensed by this entire thing. He's angry that the people asked for a king and rejected God as their king. And God says to him in chapter 9, verse 16, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. 
Do you hear that, friend? Once again in the history of Israel, God meets their sin with his salvation. That's how he greets them. He is near to her in her suffering. Chapter 10, verse 1, he calls Israel his heritage. That is his inheritance. Elsewhere, he calls Israel his treasured possession. These are a people, his people, whom he loves and cares for and is near to in their suffering. A couple of days ago, uh, a friend of mine, Brian, and I took a massive hike um, out, out around Mount Mitchell on the Crest Peaks, and you spend a grueling day hiking with a man, and you get to know him pretty well. And about the four-hour mark, uh, Brian turns to me, and he asks, David, what have you done to cherish your wife? And man, that just took me back. I had no idea in that moment how to answer that question. And if any of you are thinking about asking about my marriage, the question I prefer is, David, are you doing your share of washing the dishes? Because I'm ready to kind of give an answer to that. But that question, what have you done to cherish your wife? That kind of sucked the air out of me. And Brian essentially is taking that directly from Ephesians chapter 5, that great passage about marriage, husbands and wives. But you dig into that passage a little bit, and there is something there a nugget of gold that applies to every single person in this room, not just husbands, but mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and friends. This has imminent application for our lives. And this is what Paul writes. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. When I asked us, what does God think of you right now? How many of you, your knee-jerk reaction was to say, if I could describe God's relationship to me right now in all of my sin and all of my suffering, the first thing I would think to say is he nourishes me and he cherishes me. I am his heritage and his treasured possession. You think if you were an Israelite living on the border of the Philistine territory that you're conflicted from within of your own sin and you're constantly being harassed by the enemy, that if you were to ask that person right now, what does God think of you, that they would have said, I feel like I'm God's heritage. I feel like I'm God's inheritance. I feel like he treasures me as a possession. Of course not. You wouldn't say that in the middle of suffering. And yet in this passage, we get a rare glimpse that we don't often get in our own lives. And that is not to only see the day-to-day experience of an Israelite, but to see the view from heaven of what God thinks about this person. We watch an Israelite suffer and cry out to God and feel like God is not present. And then we get to watch God move towards his people in love and salvation. Samuel is going to teach us again and again that what we feel and what is real can be two radically different things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we find ourselves in dark places. And in those dark places, we mistrust that you are good and that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. I pray that in the gospel, we would understand that you, as our heavenly Father, nourish and cherish us. Would you do that? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.